Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, coming at you from my lab. This is Dr. Santosh, your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious diseases doc. And once again, we have reached everybody's favorite alternate week version of our episodes. It's time for another, yay, Journal Club! Journal Club! Now, you know, Santosh, usually I like to round up and pick a theme for these journal clubs just pulling stories all under a similar umbrella and sometimes it means we cover stories we've covered before like our favorite evil mad scientist sergio canavero and his head transplant set to take place this year yeah yeah moving forward beautifully he's really getting ahead in his preparations (laughs) not too far ahead i hope (laughs) And sometimes it means we cover a couple different articles in multiple episodes, like our antibiotics that are being discovered from all sorts of new areas, whether it's frogs or soil or fungus, and you know we, we have a lot of those. But I figured that since we've been covering a lot of repeats, I wanted to make this week's theme about recycling so this journal club is all about recycle reduce reuse nice close the loop (laughs) close the loop i had a lot of 80s music i managed to dig up a couple and then and then we got some fun ones to close out with but let's start with the biggest recycling issue in medicine you know what is if you were to pick one area of medicine where you think we could most benefit from being able to reuse or recycle things, what do you th- what do you suppose it would be? Yeah, it's it's stuff that we talk about reusing all the time. Is that like you know you can't take it with you and you're dead? Uh, we're talking about like organs and tissues, right? Absolutely. You yeah. can pick your friends. You can pick your hobbies, but you can't pick your organs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now you can. It's a whole thing. We're going to get into it right now. <laughs> Now, normally, people on organ transplants are really, it is the absolute most extreme case of supply and demand, because there are only so many people who are even willing to donate organs, and a far larger number of people who need them. So we've turned to a lot of alternatives, and some of these we've covered in the past include the invention of artificial or synthetic organs, cybernetic organs, uh, and live patient transplants where you give up one of two things, cutting pieces out of the liver. There's a lot of different ways 
that you can transplant an organ, and we've really gotten very creative with how we do it. And despite that, we still fall so, so short of the need. Yeah, and the truth of the matter is, a lot of us can donate, some of us choose not to. Sometimes the programs aren't as good, and we're always running into problems of, A, logistics. Uh, That means that, you know, someone needs an organ immediately, maybe in Los Angeles, California, but the person who has died, who's like a perfect fit for them, is all the way in New York City, New York. And then the second problem that we have is that we have to be a little bit picky with organs. You know, we we don't want to make someone even more sick than they already are by going through the trouble of getting an organ transplant and maybe being on immunosuppressive drugs for a very, very long time. Um, just to kind of turn around and say, this organ comes with an illness, you know, that kind of a thing. Now, when we start looking at who needs organ transplants, the most commonly transplanted organs are, I believe, in order, the kidneys, the liver, the lungs, and the heart. It's like the worst Captain Planet team you could possibly think of. (laughs) Oh, that's, that's a decent well it'd it'd be like captain body i don't know how to quite say it your powers combined you're alive yeah (laughs) you're a you're a person your powers combined (laughs) (laughs) now while most people will probably never meet somebody who's had a heart lung or even a liver transplant you probably know a lot of people who may need a kidney transplant, and that would fall under almost every patient on dialysis. You know, people who've had diabetes, who may have had injury from high blood pressure, you can imagine this is a huge subset of our population. So a lot of them go into kidney failure. Now, in order to kind of decrease the amount of people who need to be on dialysis and open up some more of the transplant issues, they started considering using infected organs for kidney transplants. Now, again, this is really important, and John Oliver just did an episode recently where he describes it, first he describes his dialysis as a Brita pitcher for your blood, which I think is a perfect <laughs> description. I think that's a beautiful description as well. Yeah, it's, it, 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 its main function is to take out impurities, and I'm not talking about like weird-ass toxins and stuff. These are byproducts of metabolism. When you're turning over proteins and carbohydrates and fats, this stuff accumulates and it has to get out. And we put a link to that on the Facebook page so you can see both his explanation of dialysis as well as his takedown of many of the controversies surrounding the for-profit dialysis centers. But much more interesting is that a lot of kidneys that would otherwise be available for transplant are just thrown away. People are perfectly willing to donate them or we can get them from cadavers or even live people and we have to throw them away because they have chronic infections, things like HIV or a big one, hepatitis. And that's where we really get to the crux of this story is because hepatitis C is now curable. It's also very expensive to cure. But the fact that cures exist have really made some surgeons more willing to consider using infected organs for transplants. This would cut down immensely on the wait time for any organ. It could shrink the wait from, you know, 10, 11, 20 years where you may not survive 
that wait two even as low as you know two to three years or in some cases a matter of months you're talking about you know and, and josh when we're talking about infected organs we're not talking about oh you have the sniffles we're talking about chronic infections you know we're talking about uh if you think about infections that linger with you forever cytomegalovirus epstein-barr virus which is the the virus that causes mono i mean we do some of these things already actually absolutely but before we could look at you know transplanting one of the big infections one of the ones that sits in your body for years and years i think it's important to mention that hepatitis c is one of the major reasons why at least people with liver disease often need a transplant just having chronic deteriorating hepatitis is enough of a reason to warrant an organ transplant so this is insanely progressive that we are considering taking these organs that are infected with that virus that can necessitate the need for a liver transplant and consider putting that organ with that infection into someone right right and well we do have one beautiful part of this which can help and that is that we now have a cure for hepatitis c so you know we weren't even thinking about before thing but now we can actually you could potentially give someone a transplant get them through their transplant and then just cure the hepatitis donors who have hepatitis c tend on the whole to be a lot younger than non-infected donors and the average age of a donor you know, with a hepatitis C infection is around age 37. A lot of these people may have acquired their infection through things like sexual transmission or much more commonly drug addiction. And then they die young, leaving on the whole relatively healthy organs. It's almost kind of a waste that, you know, the, the liver may deteriorate, for instance, um, unless they have something called hepatorenal syndrome, where the death of the liver affects the kidneys. You know, the kidneys are intact. The lungs are largely intact. So in order to test the safety of whether you can even transplant organs infected with a virus that doesn't directly threaten that organ, they did an initial study where they took 10 volunteers to receive a kidney transplant from a donor who had been infected with hepatitis C. And this was just a pilot one, meaning, you know, what everybody knew what was involved. All 10 of the patients who received this contracted hepatitis C. So they all got transplants. They all got the hepatitis C. As expected. But all of them were cured of it so quickly that none really suffered any effects of the disease. And all of them are doing well with their transplant. And this study was published, I think, late last month in the New England Journal of Medicine. Nice. Okay, yeah. So, you know, we have a very good example here of situation working out beautifully. Now, this study was done at the University of Pennsylvania and performed by Dr. David Goldberg. And this was done initially to test on kidneys because, as I said, most common organ that needs to be transplanted. But here's where it starts to get really interesting. Once you've proven that you can safely transplant any infected organ, right? That was the right. pilot study. That's, the, that's start, the main thing. Now we can start expanding the pool of organs available to people who need hearts or lungs. So the next 
step in this is looking into getting hearts donated by hepatitis C infected patients because most of them are wasted and if we can add those to the pool and we say alright you could either die or you could live with a heart that has an infection and may have to deal with chronically I think most people would choose to have the heart. Almost without question. And all the participants in this early study the infected kidneys all said they were incredibly grateful for their new kidneys and they didn't even notice the extra pill a day they took for 12 weeks to get rid of the hepatitis C because Santosh as you are well aware when you get an organ transplant you have to be on a lot of pills to keep your immune system suppressed so if you're already taking you're taking five or six pills one extra one probably not going to be noticeable right exactly so the next step is really to work with hearts and the 10 people who volunteered for the study had either never heard of hepatitis C or were more concerned about getting off dialysis than about catching an infection that is curable I do want to once again go over the fact that although hepatitis C is curable the cure is still very expensive and although that price is coming down this is not a cheap thing but it is not a cheap medication as is very easily searchable. That's, I think, kind of the the scariest part for anybody is that is the cost, and it's something with. Uh, I think Dr. Josh and I both get quite upset over, but we will, we'll try not to push that particular <laughs> issue this time around. We'll we'll let it go. Just to give everybody an idea of the relative costs involved, the medicine and the surgery are working. The procedure is established and safe. But the biggest issue is to find a way to pay for this additional treatment through insurance because a 12-week course of hepatitis C drugs, which has a 90% cure rate, can run as high as $95,000. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, plain and simple, whoa. You know, I, I just saw Rent recently, and I think the perfect ending to that story is, is their song, the How Do You Measure a Year in Minutes? in moments, in feelings, in love, or in infected kidneys and hearts. <laughs> it's it's hard to measure a year in organs. It's mm -hmm. it's difficult. They're beautiful, precious things. So I, I may be paraphrasing. So let's move on. <laughs> so why don't we move on to our next story, which is another fantastic example of recycling. Now, you know, Santosh, we have covered repeatedly over and over and over again the artificial pancreas. And I have remained incredibly skeptical the entire way through, basically saying, okay, it's just a slightly better regulated insulin pump. Right. I have not been convinced, despite multiple sources and... BuzzFeed-type headline saying, the newest artificial pancreas doesn't mean that it's not great technology and won't help a lot of people. I just think it's a little ambitious to say we have an artificial organ that is entirely self-regulating when what you have is a highly advanced piece of machinery. Right. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's a beautiful thing, and, and we should definitely, you know, be very thankful for these pieces of technology, but it's not, you know, that type of cure-all that you think about where, you know, the, the organ actually comes straight from you. So I'm going to take a story that we covered a little while ago, and then I'm going to recycle, reduce, and reuse it into something new. A few months back, there was a big discovery of an organ that 
nobody in the well the most non-medical people didn't know existed something we called the omentum which is a series of vessels and fat and tissue that sort of works almost as stuffing or packing around all your abdominal organs it's surrounding them it's throughout them it's really filling up all that extra space like hay in a scarecrow okay yeah that's fair so we we only started calling it its own organ saying it has some kind of function that still needs to be studied in the last few months so i'm going to take that story and then i'm going to say that we now have a study by Dr. David Bidal, who uh-huh. published in the New England Journal of Medicine, where he has taken pancreatic islet cells. Now, islet cells are the ones that produce insulin, which is what most diabetics are either resistant to or cannot produce themselves, depending on the kind of diabetes they have. Right. So in type 1 diabetes, they've killed off their, uh, their beta cells um, because of an autoimmune problem. Um, that's, you know, that's the one that you typically hear about in childhood. And then in type two, we have eaten way too much food (laughs) and the body has actually switched on uh, a type of insulin receptor that says no more food (laughs) and refuses to take up, uh, uh, sugar into the cell and and then our, our blood sugar spikes. Right. Type 1 is basically, give me some sugar, baby. And type 2 is, I've had enough sugar, baby. Yeah. <laughs> right. So. I like that. <laughs> Dr. Baidal took pan- functioning pancreatic islet cells, which produce beta cell as well as a few other things. And then he implanted them into this new organ, the omentum, this supporting tissue that covers all the abdominal organs. And lo and behold, these omentum-implanted islet cells have produced long-term insulin independence in a patient who has type 1 diabetes. Nice! Which means we have, on an extremely early and experimental level, found a cure for diabetes, not just a maintenance or controlling treatment. Yeah, that's the super exciting part here is that we're saying that if you have type 1 diabetes, you know, you can actually get the islet cells. You can you can start making your own insulin. You don't have to worry about shooting up anymore. You know, you're no longer doing ongoing treatment. You're doing cure, period, end of story. Right. Now, this technique, this is not the first time this technique has been tried. These islet cells, which are clusters of cells that secrete insulin and glucagon in people with and without diabetes, have previously been implanted in the liver, which is another major organ that can regrow and has some healing properties. But the technique implanting it in the liver can cause a lot of inflammation and earlier rejection and just hasn't really been worth pursuing at the current level of technology. But this new tissue-engineered implant site, such as the Omentum, doesn't have this issue because the Omentum is throughout your whole stomach. It doesn't have its own unique nervous system or immune system to respond to. It's, it is literally everywhere. It has a similar blood supply as the pancreas. It drains to similar places. So you basically turn the Omentum into an extension of the pancreas, a mini pancreas that supplies insulin more naturally to diabetic patients. So this new organ 
within new study, but both of which have all been done before, may have created a possible future cure for diabetes. And when that is really the biggest health issue in the United States today, not the number one killer, but the longest chronic health condition that most people in the U.S. can expect to suffer from, that is amazing. That's a fantastic new recycling source of powers, and Captain Planet would be proud. Oh, he'd be so happy. I mean, you know, he's our hero. He's going to take pollution down to zero. The power is yours. <laughs> it's awesome. I'm glad we got to do that whole thing. <laughs> right? Yeah. We're the Planeteers. You can be one, too. <laughs> How much of that song do you remember? Oh, uh... If you if you really pushed me right now, not not very much. I, I don't remember like all of it. Call out to all, <laughs> call out to my fellow '90s kids. Put up on the Facebook wall which your favorite planeteer was and what disease you think they'd most be identified with. I'm guessing Wheeler, fire, something sexually transmitted. <laughs> That's true because it would burn. It would burn so much. <laughs> well, let's move on to the next story, which is another one about a, a new purpose for something old. Now, of course, blood is another, I guess we can say, organ. Would you consider blood an organ, Santosh? Absolutely, yeah. Um, we don't think about it this way because we don't often say, you know, something like blood is an organ because you think about everything else that's an organ i mean it's kind of this distinct thing right it's not it's not just a single uh like a i'll put it this way your brain is compact you can find it all in one place right um your uh, lungs are compact you can find them all in one place but your blood is everywhere so you don't actually think of it as an organ um but you know it is it, it is uh, in that circulatory thing, it, it is the contiguous liquid organ that provides oxygen and nutrition everywhere to your body. And another one that we don't think about, just as a side you know, note, is your skin. Your skin is one big organ. Oh, be careful, Santos. Your epidermis is showing. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Simpsons did it, but still, fantastic joke. So... The most commonly donated organ is blood. And just like with any other donated organ, there's a, the supply is not nearly as high as the demand. That's why we have organizations like the Red Cross and a number of others that try and get blood to where it needs to be. Of course, this is not always the ideal solution because there are people who require multiple transfusions, people who have sickle cell disease, people who have thalassemia, people who have unique blood types. Because even though we all know about A, B, and O, there are actually over 30 different kinds of blood types which may pop up depending on what condition you have. And you can have A, A row, A row gamma, kappa. There's a whole Greek alphabet out there for you to discover. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, you know, we run into compatibility issues all the time. And it, it is hard to think about all these things. But this is something that, I'll tell you, Josh, we, we worry about blood shortages. 
on a regular basis as physicians. But one thing that I think a lot of our listeners may not realize is that when we have tragedies in this country, we actually have a lot of wonderful people who give blood, you know, kind of en masse. But then we run into this thing that, like, we almost have too much blood in one place, and we don't have the chance to actually save that blood, keep it around, keep it fresh, and then get the blood to whoever needs it, like maybe three months out or four months out. Exactly. So the biggest issue that we've been trying to do is find a good solid way to produce artificial blood. We've, we've had some ways for a while. The problem is we can't make a bunch of it, right? Right. You can't mass produce it. And I'm glad you brought it up because scientists already can make artificial blood in the laboratory using stem cells. But the problem is volume. First off, you have to get what? the stem cell. <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry, that was a stupid joke. <laughs> the best part of that is it yeah. brought me so unexpectedly. <laughs> I, I, listeners, I mean, I don't know if Josh is going to keep this. I never catch this man off guard. Never. And it I'm always ready my heart. with a dumber joke. It's it's no, no, dumb no. and dumber, and the <laughs> few times that Santosh can sneak up on me with yeah. one of my own style terrible <laughs> puns, just bring, it warms the cockles of my heart. Oh man, this is this is just the student learning from the master. So from time to time. So the problem, as we said, is volume, yeah. as. Most techniques, you have to gather these stem cells from multiple sources and then convince them to turn into blood precursor cells and then set them up as factories where they can work for, you know, so long producing blood until they just burn out and die and disappear. Like the factories die out and your these stem cells become little blood versions of Detroit. That's actually not a bad analogy at all. And if we look at actual numbers on this, I believe that you can produce something like 500,000 blood cells from one of these little stem cell factories, but the average blood donation has over a trillion blood cells. That's quite a difference in, in, in percentage there. Again, it becomes this same issue of supply and demand. Now, this study was announced in Nature by a British team, I believe. So, Santos, you can go ahead and break out your best British accent to tell us what the team from Bristol has managed to do. Right, right. Well, uh, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to do this. So, right, we've been able to make these... We've been able to make this blood in the lab. Actually, rather than using, like, you know, some artificial stuff. We've used stem cells, right? I'll tell you the truth. We took those cells, right? And they would die before, but now they're immortal. Can you imagine, mate? We live forever, regenerating like Doctor Who. Exactly, yes! Yeah, mate, right? It's like the good doctor, it's like a bloody time lord. So we've managed to work our way from Liverpool to Austin Powers to John Oliver. Uh, yeah. <laughs> None of it 
it makes sense at all, mate. None of it makes any sense at all, right? By giving these blood cells a proper British education, they turn the stem cells into a permanent immortal source of precursor blood cells that can give you an endless amount of new blood. Now let's go back to our stateside reporters. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Oh, that was fun, though. That's the big thing, is that we now have a means to mass-produce artificial blood. And this is good. It's still not... It's still better to get your blood, you know, organically. From, <laughs> from your local donor. But for people who require rare blood types or repeated transfusions and have to worry about resistance, this gives us a great method to create hard-to-find blood. And ultimately, as the technology improves, we may be able to eventually truly mass-produce blood, and then nobody has to donate. We can just grow all our blood in a lab, kind of like, I believe, the end of the X-Files movie, or maybe The Matrix. I'm sure some sci-fi film has touched on this. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I'm, I can't remember which one right off the top of my head, but I'm sure one of those has touched on it. So if you want to look up more about this the involved people again the study came from the magazine nature and was also reported on in nature world news it was done at the university of bristol by dr jan frain from the school of biochemistry as well as professor dave anstey at the dire the director at the nihr blood and transplant research unit in red cell products for kids who can't read good and want to learn to do other stuff good too <laughs> That's an important center. The problem with it is that once you get in there, you can't turn left. What is this? A center for ants? <laughs> blood cells? Is teeny, teeny, tiny. <laughs> teeny, now, tiny again, blood cells. Right. Now, again, the major breakthrough here is that scientists have figured out a way to immortalize these cell lines and if you want to know about immortal cell lines i would direct you to a fantastic book and short film may called the immortal life of henrietta Lacks. and we won't go into it here but it really describes how useful a so-called immortal cell line can be yeah, I, I personally recommend the book highly. It, it's just a great story. It's it's a little heartbreaking of the first time that, um, you know, someone was able to kind of get cells to grow in a little dish. And if reading and watching are far too difficult for you and you like podcasts and that's your go-to, well then, Radiolab, they have done a fantastic episode all about Henrietta Lacks that covers it in far more detail than we could ever hope to. So please... Go check it out. Steve Santos, you and I each found a story that tickled our fancy. It was so much tickling. Tell me what story that you felt was perfect for this week. <laughs> yeah, at, at first I saw this story and I said, oh, this is just a sham. This is a joke. I don't know what the hell is going on here. Why is this showing up on my news feed? The, the headline on the clickbaity title, of course, Josh, it had to be clickbaity, right? Give me, give me the good, solid uh, yeah. alliteration title. Oh, right. Poppy seed oil for pregnancy. <laughs> no, 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 no. Come on, no. come on. Okay. Yeah, Crushing yeah. fallopian tubes with poppy seed oil boosts fertility fantastically. 
Oh, that's so good. I didn't get that one. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> so, yeah, this was, this was a story about uh, taking poppy seed oil, this stuff that you make opium out of, and flushing the fallopian tubes with it. And, and using that to make... Does this mean that the babies will drug test positive as they're being born? Well, hopefully not. <laughs> hopefully not. No, uh, when I went into the article, because the article was actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is an extremely reputable article, uh, journal, and, and it's one of our go-tos, um, uh, I saw immediately that, oh, okay, this is a real thing. This isn't, you know, just poppycock. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, no, it's poppy ovaries. Poppy ovaries. <laughs> it's it's poppy fallopian tubes. Uh, the, the thrust, the thrust of this article was that for a long time now, um, we've been... When we've had the chance in the modern era to study uh, infertility, we've come up against, uh, you know, two main problems uh, that that causes a, a person to be infertile. Number one uh, was that you had uh, an individual uh, the, on, the, on the woman's side where the fallopian tubes were scarred over so that you, you know, you couldn't, uh, you, you couldn't have the sperm actually f swim up, you know, the, the vaginal canal and then into the uterus and up the fallopian tubes, nor could the egg come down and, uh, and implant properly. So this would cause infertility and ectopic pregnancy, um, both of which are, are huge problems, um, you know, for a woman. Um, the other one, by the way, was male infertility. You know, you had low sperm count or something like this that would cause a problem. So if you could at least solve one of these by opening up the fallopian tubes without a lot of intervention, um, you know, you, you had a, you know, kind of a good thing going. So this was uh, the main, the main way to do this is to actually like put a little uh, bit of contrast, either water or oil contrast uh, into the uterus and, um, uh, you know, have it go up the fallopian tubes and then take an x-ray picture to actually see how they were doing. And then, you know, you just photographed with the x-ray um, and the contrast while it was there could potentially like break apart some of these adhesions without any need for any kind of surgery. Um, and uh, you had a great method of, uh, of, of restoring a little bit of fertility. Well, of course, it came up that the the first you know thing that you you could use to um to to open it up was you know either oil or water and it turns out that oil works really well this this poppy seed oil it's specifically poppy seed oil you're not just you know putting extra virgin olive oil up there and I should also mention, Santos, this actually fits perfectly in with our Journal Club's theme because this was a really old-fashioned medical technique. This method of inserting oil 
and specifically, again, poppy seed oil through the fallopian tubes, is mm-hmm. 100 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's been around uh, for a really long time. And uh, it, it makes for a wonderful way of having a tried and true uh, method just sitting right there. You know, you, you don't have to worry at all that um, this hasn't been done and all these kind of things. It's just, yeah, there you go. There's right. your, there's your solution. Basically, it was, it was done for over 100 years and then started being replaced by more modern scanning techniques such as ultrasound. And this was done out of concern to avoid irradiating the child or the women as we found out more about the dangers of radiation itself. And instead of poppy seed oil, you'd use a a special type of foam. But now, new studies are kind of bringing it back to the old school, because we are old fools who are so cool. So <laughs> we're going to get down and show you the way. And boom, there it is. So <laughs> let me hear you say, by using giant x-rays to check the fallopian tubes, this has been phased out in favor of ultrasound scales with a non-oily foam. But if something, if there's blockages or mucus, the oil may be better at dissolving this debris or mucus. It's not entirely clear. And in some cases, some fertility centers are actually just using oil to flush the tubes without following up with the x-rays because of this really unclear benefit it turns out that it's becoming not just an investigation technique, but a treatment. And the researcher who does this, or at least the researcher who first reported on it, Ben Maul of the University of Adelaide, wondered if flushing out the fallopian tubes in this way specifically improve a woman's chances of conceiving, and he still recommends that women should have their tubes checked using the oil procedure before going straight to IVF, or in vitro fertilization, which we've done a whole episode on with a wonderful friend, Stephanie Levich, and I encourage you to check it out. It was earlier this season. Now, if you know your infertility is due to poor semen quality or no ovulation, then this isn't going to help but if it's any other cause it might be a beneficial technique to go back to something that we had kind of moved past and this was reported in i believe also the new england journal of medicine it was a good week for them oh yeah (laughs) nejm it's hard to go wrong honestly with with the new england journal of medicine as a uh as a go-to it's just a it's a fantastic journal Now, that, I believe, wraps up a lot of our actual recycling stories. But since you did comment on the fallopian tubes, Santosh, and we are closing out with people who are trying to get pregnant, I figured that the story I found is going to be a perfect way to help that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you are familiar with Viagra. Uh, I mean, like, pers- per- personally, no. <laughs> uh, hey, I'm not here to judge. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> uh, are you familiar with ice cream? Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I love ice I, I love ice cream. See, I, I'm not as familiar with ice cream because I'm lactose intolerant. That's another one of that's, the, yeah. the medical deficits that our listeners have learned about. My colorblindness, my lactose intolerance, my... <laughs> Uh, my German condition where I have to make puns all the time. Yeah. 
I I love your German condition, by the way. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> it's contagious. Ah! Well, now Viagra ice cream is real, and it is, shall we say, arousing interest. <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, it's, I would call it a rousing success. How about that? <laughs> so, I'm going to be perfectly frank with all of you and tell you that this story first came to my attention through a less than reliably scientific source, Bravo TV. However, I did make sure to follow up and get a proper evidence-based story about it. But there is a Viagra-flavored gelato that is being sold in Italy at a gelato shop in Rome. <laughs> I'm still Viagra flavor. <laughs> well, well, it's not Viagra flavor. It's actually champagne flavor. <laughs> Wait, no, it gets better. Okay, oh, yeah, of course it does. <laughs> so British food inventor Charlie Harry Francis, okay. who is living in Rome, yes. made champagne flavored ice cream laced with 25 milligrams of Viagra per scoop. <laughs> and that's, uh, uh, we should let everybody know, Josh, that's not an insignificant amount. No, no, that is actually bordering on the consult your doctor before eating this ice cream. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, we I think we're going to be doing an episode on our own uh, f- federal drug uh, you know, Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, this would not pus- pass muster with our FDA. Not well, in a billion years. <laughs> well, Santosh, we do have a Republican-led Congress, so let's <laughs> not jump to conclusions <laughs> just yet. I think, and, and yeah, yeah, I mean, given that, you know, if we're switching over to this uh, Trump care coming up soon, you know, if if erectile dysfunction does become a pre-existing condition, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so once again, each scoop of the dessert contains 25 milligrams of Viagra, which is effectively one dose. It's the same as one pill crushed up mixed into ice cream. It is originally created by this food inventor for one of his A-list celebrity clients, and his company is called Lick Me, I'm Delicious. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> now, now, since you did take the time to mention the FDA, uh, the drug manufacturer of Viagra was... Pfizer was ordered to shut down its campaign that basically implied that everyone who took Viagra would become a devilish, lusty Lothario. Sure, sure. And they said, no, it will return function, but it is not going to make you into a rampant horn dog. If you were already that, that's your business. This will just give you the ability. Now, many men who do not have erectile dysfunction have still used it to optimize their sexual report. And a 2010 study in one of our favorite journals, the Journal of Sexual Medicine, more than 21% of healthy men ages 18 to 30 use it as a recreational drug. We do not endorse this. No, we certainly don't. (laughs) And a number of reports have called the safety of 
Viagra into question. We know if you're on certain kinds of blood pressure drugs, you should not be taking Viagra because it can cause you to pass out. And uh -huh. even a recent study from the Journal of the American Medical Association did find a association that men who take Viagra are also about 84% more likely to be diagnosed with melanoma, which is a pretty serious skin cancer compared with men who do not use the drug. Now, to be fair, a lot of the men who are taking Viagra also are older, also are going to be more susceptible to any kinds of cancers, out in the sun, things like that. But it's interesting to note that men who were not taking Viagra did not have this significant, the same increase in risk. They were, I believe, about 75% just by age-related matches to be diagnosed with melanoma, and we had an 84% if they took Viagra. So none of these warnings are likely to cool anyone's ardor for Viagra ice cream. Right. It's, uh, I think things will continue on a pace. <laughs> and I am absolutely certain that any of our listeners, we're just going to give you an easy just the tip. If you go to Rome, that's where they're selling it. <laughs> Have at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you where, not because I don't know. It's pretty easily defined. Yeah, yeah. Much is, you're going to find it just fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think, however, that I'm very surprised that it's in Rome and not Pisa, because I think if they were selling Viagra ice cream in Pisa, it might not be a leaning tower anymore. Aha! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, that terrible. wraps it up. There will be yeah, it does no wrap it up. I think there will be no other justice. By week. the way, do wrap it up. You know, <laughs> sex abroad, etc. We've talked about it already, but keep it keep it wrapped up. Wrap it up, and there you go. This week's just the tip is Viagra ice cream in Rome, and you cannot set me up that easily without sending me into a pun seizure. So, yeah. <laughs> I think at that point we should sign off, folks. We have seen a huge increase in our listeners and our downloads. I want to thank you all. It was recently my birthday. It is the best gift I could have hoped for to know that we are reaching you and that people are enjoying and listening. If I could ask one small favor, if wherever you're listening, you could go ahead and give us a review, whether it's on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you obtain your podcasts, please review us because it helps more people find the show and it gives us an even better excuse to talk about this kind of stuff. And with that, cue the outro. Santosh, are you still there? <laughs>